Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to worship on this beautiful Sunday morning. Let's prepare our hearts and minds to worship God now as we listen to the prelude. Will you join with me now in the call to worship? That's printed in the bulletin. Give thanks to the Lord for God is good. God's steadfast love endures forever. Cry to the Lord in your trouble and God will deliver you from your distress. God's steadfast love endures forever. Let's praise the Lord.
be seated. And let's pray. Holy and loving God, we are so grateful that you've called us to be here today. From wherever we came during this past week, these past weeks, whatever places we have found ourselves, up or down or somewhere in between, God, you've called us to this present moment, to this particular place with these particular people. And Holy God, we thank you that you have called us here and pray that you will guide us to hear your word as it is preached, as it is spoken, as it is sung, as we experience your word, your presence in silence as well, and in sacrament. Let us be able to hear you. Sometimes your voice is loud, sometimes your voice is still and small, or the sound of sheer silence as we hear that Elijah experienced on the mountaintop. Holy God, wherever we are today, let us hear your voice, let us experience your presence, and open us now to your presence by your Holy Spirit as we enter a time of silent prayer. out of the silence, God's people say together, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together the prayer of preparation and confession that's here in the bulletin. Mighty and merciful God, in our minds we believe we are attentive to those who are hungry or thirsty. We welcome strangers we encounter. We are caregivers for those who are ill, friends to those who are in prison. In our hearts, we know that we more often avert our eyes. We pretend not to see the homeless person. We avoid those who are different and stay away from those who are suffering because we don't know what to say. Forgive us, God, for when we did not recognize you in the face of a stranger, or when we failed to care for those in need, open our hearts so that we might see the stranger with your eyes and strive to be your hands and feet in this world. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, in a world of constant change, one fact remains true always, that in Jesus Christ, God accepts you, God loves you, 
God forgives you and promises to be with you wherever you go in this world and in this life and beyond. So receive the good news. You are beloved in Jesus Christ. Pass on that good news to others and be at peace. Amen. Let's stand and greet those that are around us. Good morning. We welcome you on this one of the highest, holiest days in the Christian calendar, Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, we're glad that you're here, made time for this. Uh, if you are on the inside aisle, if you'll take the pew pad, sign yourself in and pass it on down. If you look to the announcement page, there are several announcements. Next Sunday after church, our church president, Michael Osborne, is hosting a coffee to give information about the transition process for the new senior minister. Uh, 2020 pledge update is that we are almost there. We have a little bit to go. If you have not sent your pledge card in, we're trying to wrap up the campaign. Please do that. There's an announcement about the Ash Wednesday worship service, which is coming up on February 26th. We need volunteers to help uh, for Palm Sunday for decorating the church. There's an announcement from the Altar Guild about that. And then Hope Cafe is a opportunity to serve dinner uh, at City Team Ministry for homeless people in Oakland. And that next evening is February 8th, that opportunity. There's also one right after that on March 21st, which is the Project Peace Community Service Day. Uh, we did that last year, we're doing that again this year. There's a pickup party that's available. There's a reminder of the prayer boxes. If you have, there's cards in the pews. If any of you have a prayer request, you can fill that out. And then an announcement, a reminder about Sunday worship uh, being on website and on Facebook. So today we have a very special guest. Uh, Reverend Mesias Nkoma is here with us. Mesias is the pastor of the Chambanwala Church in Malawi. Now, our sister church, Kafida, has six prayer houses, which are like little mini churches. And when they get big enough and they have a sanctuary and a manse, they become an official church. Well, Chambanwala was the first prayer house to become an official church. So it is the daughter of our sister church, which makes it our niece. Um, and so uh, the pastor is here uh, with that. He's actually studying for a program in, in Los Angeles at the International Theological Seminary there. He has a two-year program. He's here studying. Uh, and so we had the opportunity to bring him up to be with us uh, this weekend. I'll, you'll be hearing more from him later on in the worship service as well.
in June, a delegation from this church, including Rod Brown, Scott Kale, Michael Barber, Pete Wilson, and myself, went to visit our sister church, Kafita, and one of the highlights of that visit was our visit to our niece, Champamwala. And uh, we, Michael Barber put together a two-minute little clip uh, of the uh, video that we're going to show to you about the Chambamwala Church. <laughs> so good to see you, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. We're, I'm looking forward to going to Chambamwala. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> The Chambanwala Church uh, volunteered to pick us up at our hotel in their bus. And of course, the bus was already loaded with their nursery choir, about 30 kids in the back of the bus. And there's a bunch of elders from Chambanwala Church. We all cram in there, probably 40 people in a bus fit for 30. <laughs> So after a 30-minute ride, we're approaching Chambamwala. We're a quarter of a mile away. And along the side of the road, there's all these kids, kids from the church, with signs that say, welcome to Chambamwala, welcome PCC. Uh, it was an absolute throng of kids following us. Rod Brown jumps out of the bus and starts marching with them toward the church. They're singing and dancing, and it was a riot. All of a sudden, uh, along with Michael, I was—we we were made elders of the church. So, so we were—we were both blown away by that, and it was, you know, a really special moment. It was great. You know, I, I went over there expecting nothing, and, and came back to the U.S. a, a church elder. So uh, I'm uh, standing a little taller and uh, a little more spring in my step. They, they are not strangers yet. We are brothers and sisters. Eh? <laughs> test, 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 test. It's on? Okay, good. Reverend Nkoma, welcome. Thank so you. great to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. That brings back some great memories yes. of our visit in mm -hmm, June. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, what made you decide to be a minister? Yeah, two, two, two things. Uh, the first one is uh, I had accident twice in my life, and uh, one claimed uh, two lives, so I was saved from that. And then secondly, uh, I was being used as a, a, a a leader in the church, and then maybe leading groups of uh, 
you know, any activities in the church. So these two things prompted me to go as a, a minister. And so you're the first minister at Chambamwala Church. They finally got the church built, took 10 years or so, and the manse, and then you came. So being the minister there, uh, what are the major joys and challenges? Uh, firstly, uh, being a minister on a newly born church, I thought I am one of the church planters. So I really liked that, I was excited. And certainly, when you came, visited us, it was really joyful time. I really enjoyed that. Especially, you know, making some of the, you know, uh, Peter and uh, being leaders, I enjoyed that. Thirdly, uh, the house of the minister that you have built, being the first person to use it, I felt, yes, here I am. And then lastly, uh, there are choirs. I enjoy the choirs. About more than 10 choirs in the church. So, and what about the challenges? Yeah, challenges. There are many, but uh, I'll just pick three. The first one is uh, doing a ministry at a church with 1,600 people. 1,600 people. So yes. like on Sunday morning, how many people are at church? About 1,400. So about like here. Yes. <laughs> it's a challenge, yes. And certainly, uh, you know, we have this culture uh, called Nyao, which is more or less witchcraft, which is always against uh, activities in the church. So that was one of the challenges I ever faced. And uh, thirdly, you know, Malawi is uh, one of the poorest countries then maybe sometimes people could not attend church services because they slept on an empty stomach. So that was really a challenge. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the food situation in, yes. in Malawi many years is uh, very difficult because of famines or droughts. Yes. Um, and so I, we understand that uh, as well. You went from this little area of Chambamwala and then you landed in the middle of Los Angeles. What was that transition like for you? Two thoughts. You know, first part of it was uh, like a, a shock. Shock, you know? Cultural shock. You know, language different. You know, like that. But on the other side, I was so excited to see, you know, America as if I'm on a different side of the world. Development. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Roads, networks. But one thing that I found interesting was that, you know, I didn't expect that I would find people dedicated to Christ, like you are. So that really impressed me so much. And I appreciate God for that's, that. That's great. Yes. And then tell us, what are your plans uh, for when you go back? Yeah, when I go back, I would like to continue being a, a minister, serving people and mentoring people, lay people like leaders, 
And uh, secondly, I want to continue doing my men's ministry because I'm a specialist teacher of the death. So I want to continue doing that. And thirdly, I would like to be a good husband to my wife, Ida, and five children. I think that's it. So um, Reverend Nkoma gave me this morning a little list of things he wanted to ask the church to pray for, uh, for him. And that includes his life at the seminary, for God to provide our needs, for his vision when he goes back to Malawi, for his family that he is missing so much that God should take care of them, uh, for food, rent, school fees, and for his wife who was just uh, diagnosed with diabetes, um, and the ability perhaps to be able to go back and to visit them in between his terms here. So those are our prayer requests. Thank you so much, Reverend Nkoma, for being with us. Thank you so Thank much. You. Scripture the old, from the Old Testament is from Proverbs 31. Open your mouth for the dumb, for the rights of all who are left desolate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, maintain the rights of the poor and needy. And then from Luke 12, but he who did not know and did what deserved a beating shall receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And of him whom men commit much, they will demand all the more. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. So in this series on the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, this is the fourth part. The first week we looked at the actual story of the Good Samaritan about the priest and the Levite who passed by the man beaten up by the side of the road and about how the one who stopped to help was the least likely one that we would never expect, the dreaded Samaritan, the enemy of all the Jews, uh, was the one who was kind. The, the second week, we looked at the question of how can we be good Samaritans to those who are sick? Uh, and then the third week, we looked at how can we be Samaritans in, for the force of justice in the world? This week, we're looking at how to be a Samaritan to the poor. And then next week, the final week, we will look at how to be good Samaritans to our planet our planet Earth here. I have to uh, admit that you're not going to learn anything new this morning. Uh, there's nothing new here. Uh, that, and that's okay, because preaching often is not sharing a new idea, but it is simply reminding you of something you already know, but it's too important to forget. And so today, we look at the heart of Jesus' ministry here. By making the teachings of Jesus a religion instead of a path to be lived, we avoid the way of Jesus altogether, said Richard Rohr. Because, see, Jesus didn't ask to be worshipped. He asked to be followed, followed. He didn't say, come and worship me. He said, come and follow me. And to be a follower of Jesus means to be engaged in the kind of things that Jesus was engaged with. And when you look at his ministry, he spent a lot of time helping sick people and a lot of time helping poor people. That was central to who he was about. And so our job is to continue that way. Jesus, uh, we don't know much about his first 30 years. We have the little stories about his birth. Then we have one story from when he was 12 years old. 
and then this, the, it picks up again when he's 30 years old. The one thing we do know was that he was a carpenter for those first years of his life. And so at the age of 30, he puts down the carpentry tools and he marches into the synagogue and he gives his first statement. This is the beginning of what we call his ministry, which lasted for three years. And here's the first words that came out of Jesus' mouth when he began his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's as close to a mission statement as we can get when it comes to Jesus. He's saying at the very beginning of his ministry that he has come to bring good news to the poor. In Proverbs, we, re we read, Speak for justice, stand up for the poor and destitute. And from Luke 12, From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. The one thing that just about every biblical scholar can agree on is that the central element of Jesus' ministry was to serve the poor. So let's look at that for today. A quick look at the numbers. There are approximately 7.8 billion people in the world. Out of that 7.8 billion, 26% live on less than $3 a day. 46% live on less than $5 a day. So almost half the world's population is in poverty, living on less than $5 a day. But the good news, and we, we, can, we can never forget this, it's getting better. Those numbers 10 years ago or 20 years ago were far worse. The percentage of people living in poverty declines every year. The percentage of people who, who die from not having clean water, who desire, from diseases, it decreases every year because of the efforts of churches, NGOs around the world doing good things. So while the, the problem is still huge, there's a lot of people out there that don't have enough, we need to understand that the efforts that we have been making are making a difference in the world. And we just have to keep on doing it. Jeffrey Sachs, who is an economist with the United Nations, and they have developed the Millennium Development Goals that have been agreed upon by the United Nations, these group of economists and things, say that to solve the major problems of the world would cost approximately 70 to $80 billion a year. That's to uh, meet the most essential human needs, clean water, sanitation, prenatal and infant maternal care, basic education, immunizations, and long-term development, between 70 and $80 billion a year, which sounds like a huge amount of money when you consider that the U.S. military budget in one year alone is $636 billion. So compared to that, it's a small amount of money that, to actually to be able to eliminate most of the, the world's greatest problems. It's very, very doable. We just do not have yet the political will in our country to do that. Or as individuals, most Americans give less than 2% of their income to all charitable causes. So if that were to increase, if governments were to begin to care, we could make a huge dent in this problem of poverty in the world. One other problem about poverty is that it, oftentimes it's invisible. Martin Luther King 
said the poor have been shut out of our minds and driven from the mainstream of our societies because we have allowed them to become invisible. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. No nation can be great if it does not have a concern for the least of these. In an ironic way, you know, all these homeless camps that we see around us, all the people sleeping on the streets and tents and stuff like that, in an ironic way, that may be a blessing because it takes the problem of poverty and homelessness out of being hidden and makes it more visible. And perhaps the visibility of that problem will cause people to try to do something about it. That could be the good thing that would come out of this terrible situation that we have in our society. Another king, the author Stephen King, was invited to give the commencement speech at Vassar University, and he called it Scaring You to Action. Uh, he had an incident in his life in which, in 1999, he was hit by a car. He was walking along the road in his, by his home in Maine, and a car slammed into him. He nearly died. He said in the speech, I had a MasterCard in my wallet, but when you're lying in the ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. His insight is that we come into this world naked and broke, and we, we may be dressed when we go out, but we're just as broke. Of all the power, he says, that most Americans have, the greatest is undoubtedly the power of compassion, the ability to give. We have enormous resources in this country, but they're only on loan. They're only yours to give for a short while. I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others, he told the graduates. And why not? All you have is on loan anyway. All that lasts is what you pass on. The rest is smoke and mirrors. Stephen King invited the audience to imagine a typical American backyard. Mom, dad, the kids, enjoying a delicious barbecue next to the swimming pool. And standing around that fence, looking in, are emaciated men, women, starving children. They are silent. They only watch. I don't know if Stephen King is a Christian or not, but I know one thing. When it comes to the message of Jesus about the poor, he gets it. He gets it truly. And so, the, the other problem that we have in dealing with poverty is the untruth of the crowd. Reinhold Niebuhr wrote a book called Moral Man, Immoral Society, in which he argued that it's easier for an individual to act morally than for a group, that there are things in a group dynamic which make it more difficult for moral action. Or Soren Kierkegaard said, the crowd is untruth. The truth comes only in personal terms. And so when we, we know that, there's a, there's a name that probably only people my age or older will remember, and the name is Kitty Genovese. For those of you that are young, I'll tell you her story. She was a young woman who lived in Queens, New York, and in 1964, she was stabbed to death in broad daylight on the sidewalk in front of her apartment. The New York Times reported that 38 people were witnesses to the crime, and yet not one person intervened or even called the police. They developed a term out of that incident called the bystander effect, which says that when there are multiple people who are bystanders, it lessens the, the, the chance that a person will act or intervene. 
When there's only one person observing something like that, then it's pretty obvious that you got to do something. But if there's a whole bunch of people, then people tend to hold back and wait for someone more qualified to, in, to get involved. That's why many crime stories have the sentence, there were many bystanders but no witnesses. Because no one was willing to come forward and to get involved in that situation. They held back in that way. So as Dostoevsky said, everyone is responsible for everyone else, but I am most responsible. Jesus told an amazing story about a rich man and a poor man called Lazarus. The rich man lived in a gated community. He had a gate in front of his house and to keep out the riffraff. Lazarus, the poor man, sat in front of the gate, sat there, and it says that he lived off the scraps from the rich man's table. So he's there outside the gate, living there off the scrap, off the garbage that is taken out. And in Jesus' story, they both die on the same day. And the rich man goes to hell, and Lazarus goes to heaven. And the rich man looks up and sees Lazarus, and he sees Abraham. He's a religious man. He knows his prophets. He knows who they are. So he was a religious guy, but unfortunately, he never had eyes to see the poor man outside the gate. He never really saw Lazarus. And he finds that the chasm he built between him and Lazarus wasn't just a gap between him and his neighbor. It was a gap between himself and God. When people go and volunteer in Mother Teresa's hospice in Calcutta, and when they're getting ready to leave and go back to their home, she would always say to them, now when you return, find your own Calcutta. Find your own Calcutta. Wherever it is, because there's people in need everywhere. We're right here. Every Sunday you hear the list of opportunities, to whether it's city team ministry or Project Peace. Any, they're all ministries to find your own Calcutta, your own way to make a big difference in this world. Finally, a student once asked the great anthropologist Margaret Mead, what was the earliest sign of civilization in any culture? He thought that perhaps the, the answer would be a, uh, a cooking implement like a clay pot or a tool like a fish hook or a grinding stone. But she said, no, the greatest, the earliest sign of civilization is a healed femur. A femur, you know, the big bone in your leg? A healed femur. She explained that there are no healed femurs to be found where the law of the jungle, the survival of the fittest reigns. A healed femur shows that someone cared, that someone had to do that injured person's hunting and gathering while their leg healed. Thus, the evidence of compassion is the first sign of civilization. It is also the first sign of being a follower of Jesus Christ. As Luke said, from everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. How can we ever thank God for that burden, which turns out to be our greatest blessing? Amen.
join me in the great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give God thanks and praise. Be seated, please. Today we join our voices with the voices of those who have gone before in angels, archangels in heaven, who are constantly singing the praise of the Lord. It's our great privilege on the first Sunday of the month to be able to celebrate communion. We're, we're here and we're remembering the last night of Jesus' life when he was upstairs with his disciples and they were sitting at table and he took the bread that was before him and he broke it and he said, take this and eat for this is my body that is broken for you. And then he took the cup that was there and he said, drink this for this is a cup of salvation that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Would you join with me together in reciting the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to this, his table. It's the largest, most inclusive table in the world. 
everyone is welcome here. It doesn't matter your age or your gender, your sexual orientation, your economic status. All are welcome at this table. Jesus said that uh, if your heart is filled with joy, come to me and give thanks. But if you're here this morning and you're carrying a heavy burden, he said, come and bring your burden to me. Give it to me and I'll give you a lighter one. He said, if you're spiritually thirsty, come to me and I'll give you living water and you'll never be spiritually thirsty again. This is his invitation to you this morning. Come to his table. gifts of God for the people of God. Come for all things are ready.
As we do each time we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper here in this sanctuary, I invite us all now to join together in reading or reciting the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. We're going to go back to us. Brothers and sisters, as you go forth from here, I remind you that you leave as representatives and ambassadors of our Lord Jesus Christ. So live your life this week in such a way that wherever you are, when people see you, they'll see Christ living in you. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and always hold you in the palm of his hand. Amen. Go in peace.